Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Before we get started, just a public service announcement that today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to their audiobooks whenever and whenever you want and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. That's www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Hello, Dr. Davis. Can Dr. C. Davis? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. If you can just speak up or turn the volume up, that would be great. Okay. <clears throat> is this better? Uh, it, it is slightly better. I can hear you a little better. If I get a, a cue that we need you to come up a bit, I'll let you know. Very well. All right. So I was sitting here thinking to myself, how do I introduce Dr. Sidney Davis, Jr., who many would say is a controversial figure. I went to your website, and I go, bloody heck. I cannot come up with words to describe Dr. Sidney Davis, Jr., so I'm going to let him do the honors himself. How would you describe yourself, sir? Uh, I would describe myself as a researcher of African and pre-African history. I would describe myself as an activist, a human rights activist. I would describe myself as one who has dedicated his his life and his service to the uplifting of the African people and in particular of the African woman and the renaissance of our people. That would be it in a nutshell. I love that. Now let's talk about your, your the research component of who you are because I um, am someone who matriculated through my undergraduate experience and then went into my graduate work. And the part about research is something that I think separates people who are just students and those who are academics, those who are intellectuals, those who really care about a discipline or a subject. Within your discipline of African history, uh, when you formulate your opinions, when you come up with your ideals, how do you research that? If you said, you know, Africa at such and such a time was a place where people X, Y, and Z. Where do you get your research from? How do you do that? Do you go on Google like most people, or do you actually read books? How do you formulate your research? Well, one does not have to be a scholar or an academic to be a researcher. Uh, One of our greatest master teachers, John Henry Clark, only went up to the eighth grade, and he was the consummate academic or scholar when it comes to African history or pre-African history, one needs only to read to become a researcher, to read or to do 
an active on the ground research to be researcher. One does not have to go to school. One does not have to have a degree. Many of our researchers, many of our master teachers are what we would call autodidactic. That is, they taught themselves, they educated themselves by involving themselves in reading various um, um, books, um, literature that expands a wide vast a range of subjects involved anthropology, social anthropology, history, uh, archaeology, paleontology, um, linguistics, genetics, all of these things. So um, if one would go to my Goodreads, I have a Goodreads uh, library uh, online. If one would go to my Goodreads library, they would see the books that I have read, some of the books that I have read that are a part of my library that I have read over the years. So I would define anyone who is a scholar or a researcher, that's, uh, to um, address your question, is one who reads books that reads primary literature, secondary literature, or, you know, or, or reads um, literature that is original, original uh, literature from the people themselves, the, uh, the, the uh, exploring the culture as um, viewed from the eyes of those who are being um, studied. There, you know, you have those who are outside, outsiders who uh, study Africa, for instance. Um, then you have those who are inside, who are Africans, who um, give their story. And it's, I, I, I take both approaches. I read, I read, um, those who are who have studied from the outside to get what their observations have been, and I also um, read insiders, the voice of Africans themselves, and I think that reading the voice of Africans themselves is the most crucial aspect of doing research in Africa, on Africa, when it comes to history, or and especially its prehistory. Mm-hmm. Well, very well. We're going to get back to that in a second. Um, but I want to dig a little bit deeper into some of your views and your policies. Um, I went to your website, and I want to touch on some of that information, too. Um, but uh, I want to start off uh, in a very broad sense by trying to get your opinion on uh, how you think President Obama's foreign policy has measured out, specifically when it comes to Africa. Um, do you think that he's done a good job, a bad job? How would you assess uh, his involvement uh, in terms of what he has done so far? I hesitate to give you from my own words, from my own emotions, my view with regard to President Obama's policy on Africa. No, I don't want you to hesitate, sir. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will state it in more diplomatic terms. And Oh, please be non-diplomatic. Give us your raw gut feeling. Um, my my view of Obama, President Obama's um, Africa policy, or what we might even call now United States or U.S. policy toward Africa, is an abysmal failure. It is, um, and to get the context of what I'm talking about, it's important that we have a a context with uh, with respect to the United States policy 
uh, with regard to Africa. And I think that fundamental, fundamental to that perspective is a uh, documentary that I would recommend that anyone who wants to understand historically what the United States policies toward Africa has been and continues to be. It is a documentary that was uh, made by Randall Robinson of TransAfrica, and the documentary is called Apocalypse Africa, Made in America. You can find this documentary on YouTube. You can download it for 99 cents to get the entire documentary, or you can order the DVD. But that, in a, in a nutshell, gives the overall um, attitude and what the policy has been historically toward Africa. The reason why I would say that Obama or the United States um, policy toward Africa has been a failure is to see the things that have happened since the time he has been in office. We see that we see what happened in Libya, um, the overthrow of Gaddafi. Um, we see. Um, I think that one of the, I think the greatest failure, and let me just get to the point because I know that we don't have, we don't have much time here, but Thank the you. greatest failure of the administration of President Obama, and which has been very disappointing, is his policy to the genocide that is currently taking place in Sudan. We hear about what is happening in uh, Syria. We read about what is happening in Libya. We read about what is happening in Egypt. Uh, we read about what is happening, and we hear about all these things in the news, what is happening in uh, uh, Iraq. Um, but we don't hear anything about what is happening in Sudan. Sudan is currently waging a concerted program of ethnic and cultural genocide and complete annihilation of a, of, a, of, a, of a people, of indigenous Africans. The Sudanese government is run by the president of Sudan, Bashir, who is, who is implementing an Arabization of Sudan by the wiping out and the genocide of the indigenous people of the of Sudan that and we see this historically since the 90, 1980s where there has been a systematic effort to wipe out the people of Darfur the people of the Blue Nile the people of the Nuba Mountains over 64 indigenous African people taking away their land, Arabizing uh, Sudan by taking away their land, by raping their women, and by completely destroying their lives, starving them, killing them, bombing them. The United States policy with regard to what is happening in Sudan right now is, is a, an abysmal and a uh, criminal, what I would call criminal, neglect mm -hmm. or silence. 
We don't hear anything on CNN. We don't hear anything on Fox. You don't hear on, you don't hear anything on the major networks of what is happening in Sudan. What we see happening in what we call the Arab Spring and all of these uprisings and these conflicts taking place in the Middle East, they compare as a drop in the bucket compared to what is happening in Sudan. When we saw and, what was happening, what, what we yeah, saw I don't, happening I, in, I, in Syria. I don't mean to cut you off, Doctor, um, but but I but I want I want to dig a little bit deeper into this, um, and and at, and at some point um, give some context to to the comments. But I, I want to specifically hit into what you think President Obama, as the President of the United States, can or should be doing uh, to assist in the efforts there in Sudan specifically. Number one, he needs to follow the international um, uh, court that has, made, that has uh, indicted um, Bashir, President Bashir of Sudan, as an international criminal for crimes that he has committed against his own citizens, crimes against humanity. He should follow up and to bring this man to justice as they have done with all these other so-called um, heads of state that they have been uh, uh, going against. They've been, they've been fighting against um, the president of, of Syria. They've been going against um, Qaddafi in Libya. They have uh, implemented regime change in Iraq and so forth. But what these heads of state have done in their countries pale it's nothing in comparison to what Bashir of Sudan has done. That's the first thing. The second thing is the people who are being uh, the people who are being the victims, those of the Sudanese liberation movement. They are they are they are only asking for two things. They are asking for humanitarian aid. The United States has done nothing to help. The people of Sudan, the displaced people of Sudan, those who have been the victims of um, bombings and systematic genocide, they have done nothing. And, and as a result, being displaced as refugees, they have done nothing to help provide humanitarian aid to these people. The third thing that they could do is to enforce a no-fly zone over Sudan so that the Sudanese government uh, would be disabled and prevented from bombing its own people. If the United States would just give the people humanitarian aid, give them food because they're starving, and to give them medicine because they're dying, and to enforce a, a, uh, a no-fly zone over Sudan so that uh, this, this systematic genocide can can, can be controlled, can be stopped. If they could just do those things, the Sudanese Liberation Army would overtake Khartoum and liberate its people and bring a truly democratic process to that area. It's that simple. We don't need to put boots on the ground. We don't need to give them arms. We just need to give them humanitarian aid and stop Bashir from using his air force to bomb his own people. In terms of education resources, because we're always trying to educate our audience and tell them where to go 
if they want to find information about the, the crisis in Sudan, um, are, are there any networks, are there any websites? Where do you recommend people go to get some information on this? Uh, there, are, there are a few um, activist websites uh, with regard to what's happening in Sudan. One is called Enough. If you just go and Google Enough. The other one, another one is the Massachusetts uh, Coalition to Save Darfur. And the other one is um, um, Stop Genocide. If you would go to any, if you could Google on any of those um, areas, you would find um, networks that are uh, in place that will give one all the information that they would need as to what is happening in Sudan. Okay. Um, and I was just Googling it. How would you spell enough? Enough. Like I've had enough. Okay. E-N-O-U-G-H. No, I, I only asked you because I, I, went enough, I went to Google it uh, just because I wanted to be accurate in, in what I was pushing out there. It's called, it's called the, enough, the Enough Project. Yeah, that, that's, what it, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's called the Enough Project. People right. wanted to just go and find information. I wanted to give the actual URL. Uh, so if people want to find information on that, they can, they can go to enoughproject.org. Right. Uh, there were a couple of other ones that you recommended that we'll post on the link after we upload the interview on the, the link, um, just so people have that link that they can go to. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your website. You, you mentioned the African-Israeli conflict. For those who don't know uh, about that, can you give us uh, a sort of one-on-one on what that's about? Um, the present... The present um conflict that is taking place in Israel today between Hamas and um, the government of Israel is it's a complex um, it, it, it involves a, a complex it involves some complexities that cannot be really uh, examined or addressed in, in a few words it has a, it has a it has a history we see what we see here is a conflict uh, between an indigenous people who we call uh, the Palestinians. Um, many of these Palestinians are the indigenous peoples of this land who have been in this land for centuries. Um, these are the descendants of who we would call biblically the Canaanites. And then, and then we have the, uh, the, the Zionists, um, the, the, the state of Israel, who have based upon their um, understanding of scripture, who have um, gone to Israel, um, gone to the land of Israel, and have claimed the land of Israel based upon uh, a concept that says that they are the chosen people and that that land was given to them by God. And when we read about this historically, the history of the the, of Israel in the Bible in history has always been one of uh, violence. When you read in the Bible, God gives um, his people, Israel, um, the land of Canaan or Palestine, Philistia, and they are told to wipe out all the inhabitants. When you read historically, um, the Judean kingdom of the Maccabees had a policy of terror 
against the indigenous people of Palestine, of forced conversion. Um, and we see now today that continuing legacy of violence taking place where they believe that they have a right to the land and that the policy of violence is one of the methods by which they uh, believe that they will gain possession of something that God has given them. So what we have now from the Hamas point of view, Hamas says that we have a people who have come in who have occupied their land and they're fighting that occupation. On the Israeli side, the um, policy is called Zionism. It is the Zionist state that believes that they have a right to the land based upon a divine right given to them by God, and that divine right is exercised by the traditional policy of violence that we see now. Mm-hmm. And, and what is there to be done about it? I, I mean, if both sides are in conflict, many people would say many people are resistant to sitting at the table and having conversation. How do you resolve the conflict, in your opinion? Well, there was an opportunity, uh, there, was a, there was a political opportunity that was provided. Um, political opportunities have been provided uh, all through um, the Zionist enterprise, but have failed on, on either side to take advantage of trying to effect a compromise where both peoples can live side by side and that, uh, where, they, uh, where they would coexist. Um, I to state what would be the solution to the conflict that exists. The only thing that I can state that there has to be some sort of a compromise where they would sit down and reach a conclusion that they almost did between um, uh, um, Begin and Arafat and between Rabin and Arafat. Uh, these things were, uh, you know, such negotiations were underway where a compromise would, uh, was in the offing, but other things um, got in the way that forestalled that, the assassination of, uh, of Rabin and then the continued violation of the accord uh, by Israel by uh, constructing settlements and property and lands that belong to the Palestinians. So um, we have a lock, we have loggerheads here. So I, I can't say what the solution is, but there has to be um, a political compromise of some sort that will allow these people to coexist and to um, to recognize the humanity of the peoples who live on that land. Mm-hmm. I want to move for a second to some uh, more local news, um, although these incidents were very localized uh, in New York City, but it seems to happen in a lot of different places across the country. Um, I don't know if you were uh, abreast of the recent chokeholding incident in the New York City Police Department uh, with the one individual who ended up dying as a result. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I know something about it, yes. Um, uh, so, in, in kind of a, a broad context, since you're aware of that instance and, of course, police brutality elsewhere, um, when African Americans are sort of um, in the mix with some of the brutality acts taken upon 
uh, us as people. And there was another video, another incident, where there was an African-American police officer who was caught on video stomping his foot on an African-American's head who was already being detained on the floor by more than two police officers in a video. And the one officer out of rage took his foot with his boot and planted it on someone's head. In, in the new age of, of activism, where we are trying to encourage people to speak up and speak out, and especially young people to speak up and speak out against these times uh, of, of acts, how do you think African Americans in this day and age should uh, prioritize their activist efforts when not only are we dealing with it in some cases from mm-hmm. white police officers, but also from African American police officers? Uh, who also take advantage of their positions um, within the confines of the law. Well, what we see here is a a result of conditioning of our people. And how one explains an African-American police officer being part of the system of oppression against his own people, the best way I could describe it, the best way that I could explain it, you know, it has to, it has a historical um, uh, aspect to it. Malcolm X made a speech called Message to the Grassroots. And in that speech, he describes the predicament that we see that he saw then and which still obtains now between what is happening within our own community and what is happening um, with the oppression that is taking place from those outside of our community, those who are the oppressors. He said that to understand this thing, we have to go back in slavery. And back in slavery, he talks about the house Negro and the field Negro. Are you familiar, familiar with that uh, analogy that he used in that speech? I've heard it before, but because this is an education show, I want to educate those out there who may not have been familiar. So if you can explain the two. Well, uh, first, I would recommend that you go to YouTube and find the speech and listen to the speech. But in essence, he talks about how we have to contextualize what we see happening in our communities and what we see happening in society today as it, as it, as it affects us as a people, as a black people, as African people. The house Negro was, a, was the slave who lived in the house. He loved his master. He ate his master's food, wore his master's clothes. Um, he did everything for his master to make his master happy because the master would give him favors, as opposed to the field Negro, who was the person who worked in the fields, who worked the tobacco, who worked the cotton, who worked the crops, and who received the backlash, the lash of the master. The field Negro did not like his master. He did not love his master. He was not what you would call a happy slave, as opposed to the house Negro who was a happy slave. If a field Negro would go to a house Negro and say, let's escape, let's get out of here, the field Negro would look at him and say, are you crazy? Where can I find a better house than this? Where can I buy? Where can I get better clothes than this? Where can I get um, better food than this? 
This was what you would call your house Negro. The field Negro hated his master. He would say, let's get out of here. Let's escape. Let's separate from this. Let us um, free ourselves. This was the attitude of the um, field Negro. He did not love his master. He hated his master, whereas the house Negro loved his master and would do everything for his master. So today we have what we call modern field Negroes, and we have modern house Negroes, those Negroes who want to be part of that system because the system gives them the best jobs, gives them the best clothes, gives them the best living, as opposed to those who are uh, uh, against and who are rebelling against the system, most of whom among our people are in prison, most of whom are our people who have, who have been historically Rebel, re, in, um, rebels, those who have rebelled against the system, beginning with um, with Nat Turner, with uh, Prosser, and Denmark Bessie, and all of these uh, uh, great rebels of our tradition, coming up to the modern time with the Black Panthers, with Malcolm X. These would be people that you would call field Negroes, as opposed to those who want to assimilate, who want to integrate who want to be a part of the system and who believe that the system can work for them and they feel that um, partaking in that system and then internalizing the values of that system, this is what enables them to feel that they can oppress those who are not a part of that system, whether they are black or whether they are white. So what we see here, we we see a psychological um, um, uh, event taking place in this brother who Mm -hmm. was who chokehold one of his own people right. to, to death. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pause you one second. Uh, doctor, uh, I'm going to pause for one second because I'm going to get back to this, but I am told that we have a caller on the line. And so before we lose the call, I want to give the caller an opportunity to get on. But I do want to come back and we'll talk to this in a So for the caller, go ahead, state your name and your question, please. Yeah, this is, uh, my name is Pianchi. I'm calling from the... Midwest, how are you today? Excellent. You have a question for the doctor? Well, yeah, I was going to ask the doctor. You know, I hear heard him talking about this this land and um, making mention about the because of the Bible, it was promised to uh, this certain people. But from a historical content, why is it that blacks don't? talk about the whole story because if you go back to history, chronological history, and we're talking about the Assyrians in the 8th century when they were trying to besiege what's now called Jerusalem, there was no Judaism. Of course, if it wasn't a Judaism, there wasn't a Christianity. If it wasn't a Christianity, it wasn't Islam. This French group called Yahweh's had created this, Yahweh's had created this religion, or should I say this culture, and their deity was Yahweh. And uh, the Assyrians, who was led by Sennacherib, this is a real live person, was coming down upon this country, this uh, this city, and they was defeated by the Cushites in the 25th dynasty of the Taharqa and and Shabiko. And it's partially mentioned in the Bible in Second Kings uh, 19 and 35, but they took out 
the names of these uh, students, these kings, who led the battle and replaced them with the angel of the Lord. So, I mean, if if we can't give if we can't give uh, credit to that historical fact, then all this other, you know, all these other assertions just don't mean anything. I mean, it's sort of like if you have questions on why the buildings came down during 9/11, how what legitimized Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, do you get my gist, gist there? I get it. I mean, and this is history. We don't talk about these times. You know, the twenty and and the Cushites guy was Amon. It was not no. Of course, it couldn't have been a Jehovah, but it surely wasn't Yahweh of the first five books. And later on in history, Christians would name the first five books of the Old Testament. These people never named that that. So one would have to ask, why would these Cushites come out of, you know, what was then called Upper Egypt or Northern Sudan, march that far to uh, defeat the Assyrians, send a cherub as uh, he was besieging upon uh, Jerusalem? And if if they hadn't won that battle, none of these religions would exist today. I mean, just think about it. If they had have okay. defeated them, there wouldn't have been no Yahweh, because Yahweh was a local god of no importance whatsoever. It wouldn't have been no Yahwehism if it wasn't a Yahwehism, which, quote unquote, the Hebrews adopted later on and turned into Judaism, which turned into Christianity, which turned into Islam. Then Possibly that makes Doctor uh, Davis a chance to respond. Yeah, and real quick, that makes this claim with uh, what's going on with Palestine with these uh, European Jews coming out of uh, Europe to occupy that area, it makes that claim null and void. Because it was no European area at that time. I'm, did, you, uh, you know, did, you, did you want me to address this? Yes, yeah. sir, please. Yes. Thank you, sir. Um, your points are valid. You bring some very important observations to um, this uh, examination. You're absolutely correct in what you say. Uh, um, when we look at the um, when we look at what the Assyrian did historically, uh, some of it is reflected in the uh, in the Bible, but it is not totally reflected in the Bible in the same way as we see it reflected in actual history. When we look at the Assyrian invasion historically and chronologically, we have evidence of the Assyrian subjugation of of Palestine or Judea or or, or Canaan, the land of Canaan, depicted on murals, on on steles that show the Assyrians um, taking captives out of that land and taking them and scattering them in different areas of their empire. And when you look at these depictions of these folk who were taken out of that land, they are depicted as African people. These were black people that were living in that land that the Assyrians had come down to um, subjugate and to uh, capture and to send into exile. 
If you look at the Lachish, L-A-C-H-I-S-H, the Lachish Stells, S-T-E-E-L-E or S-T-E-L-E, the Lachish Stells, do a Google on that. Look at the images. You will see the images of the people that live in that land with peppercorn hair with typical Negro features. What some of our Hebrew Israelite brethren do, they say that these were Jews, that these were the original Jews. And as the brother just remarked, there was no such thing as what we would call a Jew or Jewish empire at that time. These were the native peoples. These were native indigenous Canaanites who were taken out of that land. They were typical, they had the typical African features. It is true that when Sennacherib came and tried to besiege Jerusalem, it was Taharqa, the Nubian king of, uh, of uh, what we call Egypt, Sudan, who came and drove the Assyrian away and for a time re, um, helped to maintain the autonomy of the place that we call Jerusalem or Judea, um, as depicted in the scripture or as it is depicted historically. So what we see taking place uh, essentially with the attack of, of the uh, Assyrian uh, against um, the indigenous people. Uh, and, and can I add something with that, Doctor? Go ahead. Go ahead. And, and see, here's another point. After Sennacherib was defeated, then his son, Esher-Hardin made the campaign into what they call Philistine in 679, and he was defeated, and he advanced to the Egypt, Egyptian, quote-unquote, Egyptian border. He came back two years later. So here's the point. People say that these was original. What were they before that? I mean, if you understand what I'm saying. Because Amun was the deity of quote unquote Kushites, quote unquote African people, because there's a difference between African and black now. I mean, we say people that's dark skinned, and uh, what's the leader there in uh, Sudan now, northern Sudan? Bashir, Bashir, Bashir don't Bashir. consider himself African. He considers no, himself, he yeah. So that's what I'm talking no, about. No, so, he no, he, he considers himself Arab. Don't make, make no mistake about that. Right, and they Bashir, skin is dark, skin is and dark. people here will. People here call it black. See, but we, right. we use this term black too daggone loosely. That's right. So uh, what was these people then, and who was they following? They was Cushites. And why would black Cushites march 1,200 miles to, to, to uh, engage in a battle for somebody other than a kissing kin? Because they didn't like the the uh, – they didn't like the Arabs, or they didn't like the uh, – Dog, don't know what do we call them. Help me out. All right, let's get the doctor. Eurasian, Eurasians. They the was Aryans, totally against them. The, the Aryans. Let's get the doctor's response. Yeah. Listen, listen. Um, there is a there is a wonderful book called um, "The Wonderful Ethiopians of the Ancient Kushite Empire," written by Drusilla Dungey Houston. I would urge everyone to read this book to understand the context of what we're talking about right now. Essentially, what is happening, we have a cosmology 
of an Aryan origin coming against a cosmology of an African origin. And the cosmology of the Aryan was patriarchal, and the cosmology of the Kushite of the African was matriarchal. We learn from Sheikh Antajup that Africa was matriarchal in its ancient history before it became what we see today as patriarchal. And we have a conflict between the patriarchal cosmology against the matriarchal cosmology. The matriarchal cosmology was a cosmology that that uh, had the concept of what we call ma'at, and we have the patriarchal uh, cosmology that was a, uh, a cosmology that was um, dominating the world with this patriarchal god. Okay, so this is what we see happening here. We have a conflict of cosmology taking place. So um, it was the domination of the Aryan, these people that we want to call uh, Arab or Semitic or so forth, these were people who have an Aryan um, origin. And the Aryan origin is coming in contact with the Ethiopian or Kushite origin. And this is the... um, this is the dynamic of the conflict that we see happening anciently, and it's still playing. It's still being played out today. And you know another thing too, Doctor. If you go back, we talking about the eighth century. If you go back, uh, back during the time, uh, let's see, go back about another three thousand years during the eighteenth dynasty, when you had Ramesses, and his name was Ursa Maat Ramesh Mary Amun. He marched a he marched four divisions from what we call the day around Alexander all the way to the Hittite territory. Hittites was present day Turkey. That's and right. he defeated them. Four right. divisions from five to ten thousand men strong. Nobody never tells about that history. Well, it's, it's, uh, if you look at the book, if you if you uh, have you read this book, do you know about this book called The Wonderful Ethiopian? Community? Yeah, I know about that book. I know about it very. My my uh, my my library is about two thousand volumes, so okay, I good. got that. So 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 then you know how that the Ethiopians had an empire that stretched not only from Africa but from the area that we call the Hittites all the way to the Ganges River, even beyond that. Absolutely. Ethiopia. Ethiopia did not consist of the landmass that we call Ethiopia today. What we call Ethiopia today has only been in existence since 1930. When we read about the ancient Ethiopians, mentioned even in Herodotus, he talks about the Western Ethiopian. He talks about the Eastern Ethiopian, uh, whose uh, whose presence was from the setting of the sun to the rising of the sun. All that land that we call the Hindu Kush, uh, going all the way through um, Melanesia, all those lands of, of South uh, uh, southeastern Asia, the ancient peoples who we call Negritos, these are all descendants of the ancient Ethiopians, all the way to west, to the west, to the western continent of uh, of uh, to the Americas. This is how vast the Kushite Empire went. 
and it went northwards too, up into uh, Sen uh, Senwar's vet. Men uh, Keparat to Hootie Mays, often called Tuckmosis the Third. This brother had waged 18 battles and did not lose one. They dominated those areas. And when Alexander tried to invade the south, coming down past the first cataract, the Kushite, the uh, Kandakis, fighting along with the Kushite, turned him around. <laughs> These were women. That's right. When Augustus, when Augustus came down and tried to do the same thing, bringing Christianity, they fought Augustus off, and they had a truce meeting with him on the island. I believe the island was Tari, and the the Kadaki sent a contingent of advers, a contingent of a committee, a contingent of peacekeepers, and they had a bundle of arrows. And they presented Augustus with the arrows, and he and they told him that they was bringing this offering peace. If you don't want peace, you're going to need these arrows. Then they fought off Islam for almost a thousand eight hundred years. The That's spread right. of Islam into so That's right. when people say that black folks, uh, and I'm talking not black, I'm talking about African people, they did not want these foreign ideologies because they had their own. No, let me let me let me let me um, piggyback on what you're saying. You're you're uh, you're well read, obviously, and you have a good grasp of uh, the chronology here. Um, you noted how that those who were opposing these invaders were led by women. The Kandikis of of the Nubia of Nubia of Africa, the Amazons, mm-hmm. the Amazons of North Africa, led by the Kahina, who 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 fought against Islam invasion. We and we find this all throughout history, but we don't see it mentioned very much because this is the conspiracy of the Western Academy of white supremacy against the truth of history. And the truth of history is that it has always been our women who have been the um, custodians of our cosmology and of our culture and of our way of life, who have been in the forefront of um, defending our tradition, our culture, our cosmology, even up as to even as late as the as the 16th century, when we had the Dahomeans, uh, the, the warrior women of Dahomey, who yeah, were there in uh, in Benin. That's right. You see, so. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to illustrate and to, and to uh, highlight these points to show that this is a war, this is a cosmological war against uh, uh, patriarchy, against matriarchy. And that this war has been waged against African people, black people, or indigenous people, wherever they may be, because the cosmology of all indigenous people was matriarchal. You're absolutely right. So what we're seeing now, what we're seeing now, we're going to start seeing a reversal of this trend. This is why this knowledge is coming to fore now. This is why this radio show exists, is to indicate and to show and to announce that the jig is up. And you know, I might also mention... 
I also may mention one other. You talk about women. You had, uh, and I always like to. I spent eight years in those areas from Cairo down to the northern Sudan, the uh, Sudan uh, border, going in and out of tombs, temples, and pyramids. Yeah. There in Hadi Wafa, where uh, those areas digging through people's garbage has been dated over sixty-five thousand years ago. But Hafsetshut, her yeah, name was yeah. Kanet Amin Maat Kara Hafsetshut. She was born of an immaculate conception because Amin was tired of mixed marriages. Wow. And he impregnated, he impregnated her mother, thus giving, and she thus gave birth to her father was Tutmosis I. She was the daughter of Tutmosis I. Mm-hmm. So we think that Mary, story of Mary and Jesus was the first. No, there's been many immaculate conceptions. That is absolutely correct. That existed a thousand years before this other story that we so popularly know about. That's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. But nobody correct. talks about it. No, and she sent an epidition. She sent an epidition to Punt, which That's was right. Somali. It was not Libya. It was well, Somali because she wanted to bring back a little twat. And there in the West Bank, at her temple, you can see on the on, on the stella carved in stone, you can see those boats. And here's another point that you know that they went that they went south because the sails on the boats are up. The wind blows from the Mediterranean up the Nile, or should we say south, and that's why the sails was up. If they was coming down the Nile, they wouldn't need to sail because the water flows downward. All right. Your your point is well taken. Your observation yeah. is absolutely correct. Um, listen, let me let me recommend to you a book to add to your library that gives a context uh, behind all these things that we're talking about and brings it all together, so to speak. It is called Eden and Summa on the Niger. Eden and Summa on the Niger. Mm-hmm. You can find this book on Google. You can find this book on Amazon. It is a book that I co-authored. And if I could recommend one to you, uh, it's called The Rescue of Jerusalem. I have that book. You have that book by Henry Aubin. You know, the thing I like about this book is that this man had adopted a black child, and he couldn't seem to get the kid interested in history because he was trying to tell him the history of, of his people, which the man is, is a Caucasian. Yes, that's right. And he by, he, by chance, fell upon this story about the Cushites rescuing Jerusalem. And when yes. he, his son gravitated to this story. So it's a very good book. It has a lot of good information into it, which uh, is true. And I really appreciate everything that you had, sir. Well, I appreciate you too, sir. Thank you for calling. Thank you very much. All right. Um, on that note, I am reluctantly having to get in this. I was looking at my cues from the producer when you both started going back and forth, and she said, no, let them go, let them go. I said, should I start? She said, no, let them go, let them go. It was very informative. It was very engaging, and you, and you both seem to be going well behind uh, each other. And what we might actually do if uh, you are agreeing and if the other gentleman uh, the caller is agreeing. Uh, the producer is happy to speak with him and see if he's willing to swap his contact information with you. Um, oh, that would be so great. That I, 
Yeah, I the think gentleman, that you the gentleman of... is well read. The gentleman is well obviously well read. Um, we have read the same material. We have the same uh, view of history chronolo- chronologically, uh, historically. Um, so uh, I want to applaud him. I want to applaud him. This is a this is a scholar. This gentleman is a scholar. I don't know what kind of education he has, but he is a scholar. He is a researcher. And um, he may be what we call one of those autodidactics that we talked about, or he may be a, a scholar, an academician, or a scholar in the university or whatever. But he's yeah. well read. He has a, he has a, a good grasp of, of the history, a good grasp of the knowledge. And I, so I applaud him. I I greatly applaud him. Yeah, is that is that call still on the line? By the way, oh, he's gone. All right. So the producer has I'm his information. Here. We're going to. Are you are you there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, I'm just no, curious. I'm not a scholar, uh, by the way. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Davis touched on something, and I'm curious. Well, what is your background? What do you do, and, and how did you become so knowledgeable? Well, my background, I mentioned the buildings that fell down in, in uh, New York during 9-11. I spent almost four decades putting buildings like that up. I own my own company, by the way, for a period of time doing so. Yes, you do have black folks in this country that do things like that. <laughs> So that's a whole different show, but uh, no, I uh, my I, I spent uh, many years in Egypt and in Africa. My wife is from Ghana, by the way. So no, I uh, the history I uh, I chanced upon my interest in the history, and then one thing led to the other, and uh, it's 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 very difficult, I must say, for people to grasp the truth. And you have to do the research. You have to do the field research, for instance. But sooner or later, everything began to fall in place. And, uh, you know, religion, religions come out of people's cultures. That's where it comes from. And there's more than one God. Every ethnic group had their own deity. And the thing is with the black people is that theirs was Amun and all those wars and battles that we talked about, they had a banner, a, a symbol of Amun that they that led them out into battle. So here's the point. If black folks control the world, they control trade routes and so on and so on for all those many millennials, why would they give that up for something weaker? It don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is uh, um, the observation that my my brother has made is valid, and it is a great question. Why has this happened to us? Why has what has happened to us as a people that has put us in the condition that we are in today? Why are we now an oppressed people under the uh, under the under the oppressor? And so this is this is a this is a uh, this is a great question. This is a great uh, paradox. This is a great conundrum that we have to examine. It is not a simple uh, uh, answer to it. There is a there is a history behind it. There is a rationale behind it that has to be understood, and we have to um, go back and look um, by doing the research, by doing the um, field research, not just the um, the academic research, the reading the books, but actually on the ground research. And this is why I'm recommending to him and to all of our listeners the book Eden and Summa on the Niagara because it brings all this together and gives a rationale as to 
as to what is what is what has happened in the past as a way to understand what is happening today. Um, and as a closer, um, just so you know, this was originally scheduled to be a half an hour talk. It's now gone to an hour. Uh, and, and that's a good thing because it's more knowledge, there's more information, and then the more that we can do that, uh, the better we can better inform people. And we might actually at some point maybe want to do a part two of this it's been so great, and, and the response that we're even experiencing online has been so enormous. Um, I, I want to close out um, with uh, Dr. Davis, and if the other gentleman is still there, uh, you can chime in as well. With everything that we have discussed and all of the history and the knowledge that are out there, um, really should be leaving African-Americans more prideful about being who they are, being authentically black. Uh, and for young people, um, when there is so much negative uh, stigmas attached to whether young people want to be educated and knowledgeable, whether they want to pull up their pants or not, there seems to be so many things that people can say negatively about young African-Americans, male or female. How do we instill that sense of pride and have them walk around being proud of who they are, despite the fact that this world is very imperfect and always very nice and polite for who are black and brown in this country? Well, uh, let me say that programs such as the one that you're doing now and more of them need to be um, done. The, the, The basic problem is ignorance. The basic problem is lack of education. The basic problem is lack of awareness. Um, um, We need to engage our people to have a a greater sense of who they are, and they can't know who they are unless they know who they were, and they can't know where they're going unless they know where they've been. And so we have to engage our educators. We have to engage uh, our elders to um, use whatever methods that are necessary to awaken and to stimulate the minds of our young people against the gross materialism that is overtaking our consciousness and occluding totally the spirituality that would, uh, that we should be about. We need to be awakened. We need to be awakened spiritually. And there are many methods, many ways that that can be affected. And one of the ways is this program, programs such as this, that give opportunities for the, for the information to be uh, disseminated. We need to disseminate this information. We need to stimulate um, a, a, a curiosity, a, a spirit of investigation, a spirit of, of uh, wanting to know who our identity, our true identity uh, who we are as a people, who we are as individuals, who we are, our place, not only just in the areas where we live, not only in the country in where we live, not only on the earth, but within the entire cosmos. Okay, very well. Um, is the other gentleman there? Yeah, I'm here. My name is Pianchi. My, my parents named me after the namesake, but... Uh, You know, one of the biggest problems with blacks in America, and even if you look in a broader sense, is is economics. Uh, We have to improve our economic claim over the markets that we consist of, especially in the United States. 
whether it's your Jackson, Mississippi, your Southside Chicago, or your South Carolina, so on, Philadelphia, and so on and so on. The education that we need is not going to happen in public schools. I've watched no, this for 40 years. No, we have to have viable businesses. See, I was able to spend money I spent because I own my own company. Nobody could tell me when to come to work and so on, so on, so on. So I had a lot of discretionary money to do these things. We have to have viable businesses that's in the process of manufacturing and producing because we can't go to Asians trying to buy wholesale, whereas we can spend and sell retail and, and compete against their cousin. They're not going to sell you things at that price. They're not crazy. You have to compete against them. White supremacy is not what we think it is. It's not by whites thinking that they're better than somebody else. I mean, that's, I mean, that's an ego trip. It's about them controlling everything that you need in order to survive. And the way to defeat that is to compete against them, especially with what you have to have to, to survive with. And uh, if you don't have, if we don't have businesses, you know, Claude Anderson speaks about this very well. If we don't have viable businesses, you know, barbershops and and fried chicken places is is all right, but that ain't a viable business. We don't have viable businesses where uh, then our politics is not going to be any good because all we do is vote, but we do not finance the people that we send to the state house and the federal government in order to champion our cause because somebody else will come in and buy them out. So you got to have viable businesses in order for your politics to be good. You have to have viable businesses in order for your policing to be good because your politics makes policy that your police supposed to carry out. You got to have viable businesses in order to be able to control the media that is being the publishers and also the television because they depend on ad dollars. And then lastly, you got to have an economic system, viable businesses. People have to have money in order to support the type of schools that you need that not only teaches, not only educate you amongst the three R's and also your culture and so on and so on, but it also has to have an economic component to them. And Public schools is not going to give you that entirely. You have to have, you have to compete against. You need full choice. Okay. Um, on on that note, we, we're going to have to call it a night. Um, today's sponsor is Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Again, today's sponsor is Audible. Dot com from everyone at the Gist of Freedom. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. <laughs>